0: Iran's top nuclear scientist was traveling with his wife in a bulletproof car, surrounded by security vehicles, when he heard what sounded like the popping sound of gunfire. According to Iranian press reports, the scientist got out of the car to find out what was happening, and was immediately gunned down, possibly by a remote control operated machine gun 150 meters away. It was only the latest assassination of an Iranian scientist widely attributed to the Israelis. Did the Trump administration give a green light to the killing? And what will that mean for U.S.-Iranian relations once President-elect Biden takes office? We'll talk to Democratic Senator Chris Murphy, a member of the Foreign Relations Committee, about the killing of the Iranian scientist. And then we'll speak with Washington Post justice reporter Devlin Barrett about Attorney General Bill Barr's two surprise moves this week disputing President Trump's claims about election fraud, and then elevating John Durham as special counsel to further pursue the investigation into the FBI investigators who pursued the president. All that and more on this episode of Skullduggery. I'm Michael Izakov, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Okay, Clyman you're the old Mideast hand, and th- I, I want to get your perspective on this. Uh, it seems to me that if there was any rationale for the Israelis doing this now, assassinating that Iranian scientist, it would be primarily for the purpose of exacerbating tensions with Iran to make it more difficult for Biden, when he takes office in January, to re-engage with the Iranians and get them to agree to a sign-on of the nuclear deal uh, that the U.S. would back, once again, join the nuclear deal that Trump took us out of.
3: Yeah, I I don't think there's any question that that's uh what was going on. I mean, the clock is running down on Netanyahu. The Israelis, of course, see a nuclear Iran as an existential threat. And, you know, so the clock is running down, and uh, Netanyahu, uh, I think, felt that— He needed to do whatever he could preemptively to prevent the deal uh, starting up again. He knows that Biden has said he wants back into the deal. The Iranians themselves said they want uh, the deal to be uh, reentered again. So I think that's exactly what was happening. There's some circumstantial evidence that the Americans signed off on this. Of course, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had just been in Israel before this happened. And Bibi Netanyahu met with the Saudis in that secret trip in Saudi Arabia just a little while ago. So I think that is what's happening. I'm not totally convinced that it'll work. Remember, this isn't the first time that the Israelis have knocked off Iranian nuclear scientists. They did it back... In 2010, uh, and I think some four nuclear scientists were killed by the Israelis between 2010 and 2012. I actually had some reporting back at the time that the Americans, if they were not involved in it, knew about it and uh, were okay with it. That was in the Obama administration. And yet what happens? I mean, a couple of years later, they're negotiating the secret agreement and end up with the 2015 agreement between... United States. Well, and, and, and not Iran. to mention,
0: not to mention the efforts we conducted with the uh, Israelis to disrupt the Iranian nuclear program through cyber warfare. Um, right. Let's not right. forget Stuxnet. Something right. you've so, written you know, about.
3: Right. So, so I think I think you know the Iranians will blow off a lot of steam. The street will be angry, and at the end of the day, you know Tehran is going to make pragmatic, cold-eyed decisions about what's in their best interests. And these oil sanctions that the Trump administration imposed on Iran are crippling. And so I think in the short-term... You're not going to see a, you know, a a quick deal, but I think ultimately you might. And I'm not sure that this is going to really succeed.
0: I I do find it uh, interesting that we're talking here about assassinations and the sort of reflex uh, impulses to talk about, you know, uh, how morally (laughs) dubious they are. But uh, this is at a time when Biden is bringing back a lot of old hands from the Obama years, who were deeply involved in the drone program, which was effectively assassinations from the skies. Uh, Avril Haynes was deputy director of the CIA, signing off on these drone strikes. Of course, Jake Sullivan and uh, Tony Blinken served uh, in uh, high-level positions in the State Department while the drone wars were escalating under Obama. So I think, you know, we may have some uh, renewed discussions of uh, more equivalents, and um, we can tut-tut t- about the Israelis uh, killing people with machine gun fire, while uh, our government, of course, um, killed suspected terrorists with uh, with drone strikes.
3: I will say that they will point out that there is a, a difference under um, international law that these drone strikes were lawful acts of war, authorized under both international law and domestic law, with the authorization for the use of military force. Um, yeah, the 2001
0: a- author Yes. Uh, enacted in which the wake is, of which 9-11. Which is
3: wearing a bit thin after <laughs> yeah. after all that these That was years. then
0: used to, for drone strikes all over the world, Yemen, uh, uh, Somalia, uh, Pakistan, in many cases, the targets being folks who were barely alive or not alive at all at the time of uh, the 9-11 attacks. Uh, by the way, it'll be interesting whether uh, there is renewed talk about finding a new substitute for the authorization. Authorization to use military force uh, that was passed after 9/11. Wow, maybe all these issues about. that we <laughs> all these
3: issues that we wrote about all yeah. the time may be coming back. The AUMF drone yeah. strikes. Well, we'll Guantanamo. see if it comes
0: back. It's it's one of those yeah. uh, sort of. Remember, there, questions. Issues. There are still aren't yeah. there
3: still like 70 prisoners at Guantanamo Bay or something? Maybe it's less than that. But, uh, uh,
0: yeah, I, I, and, uh, and and including all the 9/11 conspirators who have yet yeah, to be I'm brought guessing, to trial.
3: I'm guessing Joe Biden was not asked a single time during the campaign, will you pledge to shut down Guantanamo Bay? (laughs) Right,
0: right, (laughs) for all the success uh, Obama had on that. We're also going to talk with uh, Devlin Barrett about uh, Bill Barr, who kind of confounded everybody this week with these uh, two surprising moves publicly disputing Trump's claims of election fraud. For everybody who's sort of depicted... uh, Barr is somebody who just carries water for the president. This would seem to be um, his response to that as he uh, prepares to leave office, trying to show a little independence there. But then this uh, very bar like move with John Durham. John Durham, of course, being the U.S. Attorney in Connecticut who has been investigating the investigators, something that Trump has wanted for some time to expose what he believes were all the uh, horrible things that were done to him in the Russia investigation. Trump didn't get what he wanted, which was a Durham report and or indictments before the election. Uh, Now it looks like Barr has arranged it so that Durham will live on inside the Biden Justice Department and will become, you know, pretty much untouchable because as a special counsel, uh, he could only be fired with cause.
3: Well, let me take the the election fraud decision first. Um, I think on the front end, when he issued that memo saying they were going to be looking into voter tabulation irregularities, um, that was largely about placating Trump. I mean, he, he did say also that uh, he believed that these mail-in ballots could be subject to fraud. But I think that was largely uh, to keep the boss happy. And then, the decision to go to the AP and say that he had not seen the kind of fraud that could, you know, result in you know overturning the outcome of, that would the, of the election, change the outcome of the election, would change the outcome of the election. I think that you know even Bill Barr has his limits, and he's a ultimately he knows he's about to leave office, and he's uh, you know I think he's tarnished his reputation. He probably knows that, and he sees. This clown show taking place with Sidney Powell and Giuliani and all these crazy conspiracy theories. And I think, you know, is what you said is right. I think he wants to distance himself from it. Now, on the Durham decision, you know, I think that's interesting on a number of levels. I do think there was mischief there. I think that is classic bar. I could see him chortling. You know, when making this decision, because he could see that it would put Democrats, you know, in a box. But I also, I also think that, and I know this from people who have spoken to Barr, that even before he became Attorney General, when he was uh, outside, he really thought that there was something. Uh, rotten about the Russia investigation, uh, he believed that there was uh, certainly deeply unethical behavior on the part of uh, people in the in the U.S. intelligence community and at the FBI, and potentially criminal uh, behavior. I don't know what he based that on. I don't know what evidence he he had, but that was his strong instinct, and I think he really thought that it was uh, at the end of the day, what they were going to find was that the intelligence community and people like John Brennan were responsible for a lot of bad things happening. Well, he didn't find that. And um, No, the investigation
0: and, now seems to be focused on the FBI yeah. and the FBI's handling of Crossfire Hurricane. Yeah. But I, I just wonder if, if Barr is still a
3: little invested and in, personally invested in this case and just wants to see it go on because he believed there was something there. I don't, have, I don't know that, but that's a sense that I get.
0: The big unanswered question is, does Durham have anything? He's uh, brought one case against the FBI lawyer who doctored the the email from the CIA, suggesting that um, uh, it said the opposite of what it actually said about Carter Page and was more damning than the reality. But beyond that, we just don't know. But I got to say, if there's anybody who has better sources on this and is— more inside the FBI uh, than Devlin Barrett, our guest. I don't know who it would be because um, he is unusually well-sourced among agents and former top, current and former top officials. So it'll be very interesting to get his perspective on Barr's move. But before we do that, I just want to close with... We've talked so much about uh, Trump and his completely baseless charges about the election. It was reported today that Trump's political action committee has raked in $170 million since the election purportedly to fight election fraud they I, I'm on their email list I get these emails we need you we need you more than ever you got to send money to help our lawyers bring the case to fight this stolen election stop the steal on and on they go I get them almost every day yet in fact as the Washington Post reported today when you delve into the uh, fine print most of that money is not even going to the lawyers it's going into the general pot for Trump's political action committee, the Make America Great Committee, that he can use to further his political activities uh, in perpetuity after he leaves office. And I just want to you know I, I, David vonreley, who's become my favorite Washington Post columnist these days, had a great piece today on it. I just want to read the end because he explores this and and as the con that it is, Uh, And I just want to read his closing paragraphs here. I could go on. The Internet is a souk of cheap jack merchandise, banners, flags, hats, bumper stickers, T-shirts aimed at poor saps suckered into Trump's phony war. This cynical commerce is a fitting end to an unseemly presidency. One more grand con, another monetized lie. There's a massive fraud going on here for sure, but not the one Trump is ranting about.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've done a lot of great reporting on this phenomenon, because at the end of the day, there are all these um, kind of built-in incentives uh, for people to spread and conspiracy theories and peddle this garbage, uh, because there is uh, money to be made. And, you know, for example, all the people involved in, you know, the Seth Rich conspiracy theory that you did on Conspiracy Land, you know, they are— increasing the number of followers they have, they're getting their brand out there, and ultimately they're monetizing it. So I don't think that's all that different from what Trump is doing. It's a grift.
0: Right, it's a grift. That actually reminds me of of what I started out doing when Trump uh, emerged as a presidential candidate in 2016. What was I writing about? Trump University, which was one giant con. Take courses from Donald Trump and learn how to become rich. Like Donald Trump. I mean, it was, you know, and of course that went to court and uh, uh, Trump had to get out the checkbook and write a big check to um, the former uh, students who sued him, uh, students in, in, in hand quotes here. But anyway, uh, you know, the guy went in to office that way and it looks like he's going out of office that way it's uh it's perfect symmetry
3: and maybe he'll be running for office in 2024 yeah. that right. way
0: okay well let's leave that aside for the moment and get to our discussion with chris murphy about the assassination of the iranian scientist and what it means for folks in the Mideast. east We now have with us Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Senator, welcome back to Skullduggery.
1: Great to be with you guys.
0: So a lot of news from the Mideast of late, starting with that assassination on Friday of the Iranian nuclear scientist Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, widely attributed to the Israelis. Uh, In fact, I think, believe U.S. officials have said they believe the Israelis did this. Do you believe the U.S. government knew and sanctioned this assassination?
1: Well, I don't have any uh, confirmation uh, of that, uh, but it stands to reason that the Israelis would not conduct a mission of this significance without, at the very least, U.S. knowledge, likely U.S. approval, and potentially U.S. participation. Uh, I certainly don't think you can rule any of the latter out. I think you can assume the former. Uh, And, you know, this is really dangerous business Um, when the United States either explicitly or implicitly endorses political assassinations. um, It obviously, you know, adds a level of endorsement and legitimacy to a tactic that um, can come back and be really dangerous for those of us in High political positions in the United States. It's why we have an executive order um, that's been on the books for a very long time, making it illegal for U.S. presidents to assassinate foreign leaders. It's why the Obama administration reportedly put the stop to any activity like this by the Israelis during their tenure, and uh, I really worry about what it means for the world and what it means for our security, um, that we are back in the business of assassinating high-level foreign leaders. Just a
0: couple of quick points. Uh, uh, Secretary Pompeo was in Jerusalem just a couple of weeks before this assassination. And, And then, of course, Prime Minister Netanyahu was reported to have been in Saudi Arabia just a few days before the assassination. Do you see these events as linked? Well,
1: you know, they may not be, uh, because there is uh, this uh, sort of very rapid shuttle diplomacy happening regarding recognition deals of uh, Sunni Gulf nations of Israel. Um, And I think a lot of T's are being crossed and I's are being dotted on those deals, as well as the arms sales that have come since then. So there's a lot of business being conducted by the Trump administration in and around the Middle East today. It doesn't necessarily mean that those conversations didn't include discussion of this assassination. There's just a lot else that they might be talking about.
3: Senator, uh, there may be another strategic element to this assassination beyond just slowing down uh, Iran's nuclear program, and that is. A kind of a preemptive strike on the part of the Israelis as the Trump administration is still in power and before the Biden administration comes in to try to jam the Biden administration in terms of getting back into the 2015 nuclear agreement. Um, A, do you think that that may have been the Israeli motive? And B, how effective do you think that will be?
1: Well, I think it's likely the Israeli motive and to the extent the United States participated, uh, our motive as well. And it's consistent with other behavior of the Trump administration and Mike Pompeo over the course of the last month. The pullout of U.S. troops from Iraq and Afghanistan in a lame duck administration is another attempt uh, by Trump to try to limit the options available to President-elect Biden on those two fronts when he is sworn into office. This flurry of arms deals that is happening today is another attempt to try to cement um, these new paradigms inside the Middle East, giving the president-elect less flexibility. I think your second question is whether it will be effective. Um, it likely will be to an extent. Uh, obviously, you know, the Iranian street is furious over the assassination of this scientist. That will give much less room to Rohani and Zarif to negotiate negotiate any re-entrance into the JCPOA. Um, and it probably increases the chances that in next year's presidential elections in Iran, that a really hardline candidate ends up winning, a hardline candidate that's going to be worse for Israel, it's going to be worse for security in the region, and will have no interest in any kind of negotiation with the United States over Iran's nuclear program, their ballistic missile program, or their support for terrorists in the region.
0: Senator, you said that uh, it is uh, disappointing from your perspective that we're—you said we are back in the uh, business of assassination. Now, we don't really know that the U.S. had a a, a hand in this, but we did assassinate Soleimani earlier this year. In fact, we're coming up on the anniversary of the Soleimani strike, Uh, Soleimani having been the head of the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard Corps. Was that a mistake by the um, Trump administration to um, take him out? It
1: was a colossal mistake. First of all, it was illegal. It was in contravention of the executive order, and it uh, was authorized by no declaration of war by the United States Congress. And second, you know, we've now had a year to see if it worked. Frankly, we've had four years to see if this maximum pressure campaign that I think included the assassination of Soleimani has worked. Um, In fact, Iran has been willing to talk about none of the 12 demands that Pompeo has made of the Iranians. They are not willing to talk about their nuclear program nor their ballistic missile program. Uh, The Iranians are more involved with proxies in the region than ever before. They are now shooting actively at U.S. forces in Iraq, something they weren't doing at the end of the Obama administration. The entire Trump's strategy and policy on Iran has been a disaster. It has empowered Iran. It has furthered their nuclear program. It has made them more of a regional menace. It has compromised the security of U.S. troops in the region. None of Trump's policy has worked, including um, the strike on Soleimani. They told us that the strike on Soleimani had, quote, restored deterrence, right? The idea was that it had convinced the Iranians to stop acting belligerently towards the United States. In fact, the opposite happened. Right after the Soleimani strike, they attempted to kill dozens of Americans in a strike on one of our bases. It just so happened that they missed. And since the Soleimani strike, our generals have testified publicly that the proxies that Iran controls inside Iraq have been shooting more frequently at U.S. forces and U.S.-aligned forces there. So all it did was increase the danger to American troops uh, and allies. Senator,
3: we, we want to—you mentioned the, uh, the arms deals. We, we want to ask you particularly about the UAE arms deal. But just one last Iran question. President Biden has said that he does want to get back into the Iran nuclear deal. I guess the question is, should we just re-enter it automatically, uh, in other words, end sanctions, as long as the Iranians are in compliance, or do we need to renegotiate that deal? And in particular, do we need to get rid of or renegotiate the sunset clause in that deal, which would allow Iran's enrichment program to begin again, do we have to renegotiate it?
1: my belief is that we should re-enter the deal. And once we are back inside that deal, then um, we are in a better position uh, to try to negotiate on issues outside of the agreement and to negotiate an extension of the agreement. Uh, I think right now it is too high a hill to climb to essentially start from scratch. Uh, So now, of course, it takes two to tango here. Uh, The Iranians have to be interested in re-entering the deal and re-upping on their commitments. But uh, my hope is that we will talk about getting back into that deal and then use that platform through which to negotiate others, other arrangements.
0: You are trying very hard right now to stop this $23 billion arms deal uh, to the UAE for F-35 high-tech fighter jets and Reaper drones. Uh, You wrote on Twitter the other day that this is something that will compromise our own security by selling wildly lethal weapons in the Middle East. Explain why this is so dangerous, you believe? So we've never
1: sold this kind of technology uh, into the region, right? Uh, That's the first thing to think about here. Uh, Second is ask yourself whether what the Middle East is missing today is weaponized Reaper drones that can shoot Hellfire missiles with zero risk of uh, human life lost to uh, the operator of that drone. What we know is that the UAE has a really troubled history. Uh, with respect to how they use U.S. weapons. Uh, They've used our weapons to target and kill civilians inside Yemen. Very recently, they transferred weapons we had sold them, equipment we had sold them, to extremist militias inside Yemen. They're in violation of the international arms embargo on Libya. And so there's a lot of bad behavior, and the question is, why reward the UAE with this massive, unprecedented arms sale, when we can't be sure how they're going to use those weapons or whether they're going to actually stay in the hands of the UAE? So that, in and of itself, I think, is a reason to press pause on this sale. But we also have to understand that it fuels a more general arms race in the region. I mean, if we really care about Iran's ballistic missile program, then why are we continuing to give Iran more reason to build more effective and more powerful ballistic missiles by selling record numbers of arms to Iran's enemies in the region, the Saudis and the Emiratis. So this just makes you know, no sense from a security standpoint. Um, we should be in the security business with UAE, um, but we don't have to sell them this number of arms and, and, and this serious level of arms.
0: You mentioned the Saudis, who are, of course, close allies of the UAE and are the primary drivers of the war in Yemen, which you were trying to stop. How do you see the Biden administration dealing with the Saudis, Pushing to end the war in Yemen and demanding, in particular, also accountability for the murder of Khashoggi, which the CIA has concluded was likely ordered by the de facto leader of that country. What should we do about that?
1: Well, I mean, I've said, you know, from the beginning that we should be suspending our arms sales to the Saudis until we have some degree of accountability, um, at least a clear admission from the Saudis as to what happened. Um, On Yemen, um, listen, I I certainly think that our arms sales should be conditional on um, the Yemen war coming to a close or at least a temporary peace deal being signed. But I actually think that it, it just takes active U.S. Participation at the secretary level, and we may be able to unlock a peace agreement. Part of the problem over the last four years has been that Tillerson and Pompeo have not been actively involved in trying to settle that conflict. I think there is a peace deal there for the taking. And so if Secretary Blinken gets directly involved, which I think he will, I think we can come up with a resolution there that makes the Saudis and the Emiratis happy, that gives the Houthis some role in the uh, government while ending outright, Hostilities. And so
0: that's an issue where I just think we have to work harder at it. What do we do about MBS?
1: Well, again,
0: we have to sort of watch MBS's behavior, right? And Well, we've seen his behavior, and we believe he committed murder of an American—of a journalist writing for an American newspaper. Right.
1: So, so right. So, I have, as I said, don't sell them arms until we have some amount of accountability. Listen, MBS is, the, is going to be the leader of, of the nation. We should tell him that our continued participation in security relationship with Saudi Arabia is dependent on the way in which he uses those weapons, and let's watch what he does in places like Syria uh, and Yemen moving forward. Senator, we know we have to let you go. So last question, um, you
3: mentioned Tony Blinken. You're going to be voting on his confirmation. What kind of secretary of state do you think he'll be? How do you think he'll guide uh, American foreign policy in a post-Trump era?
1: one of the things, I, I know Tony well, and he's been good to keep in close contact with me you know, over the course of the, the campaign. Um, obviously, I worked very closely with him when he was deputy secretary of state. What I love about Tony is that he's open to new ideas. You know, he's an experienced diplomat. He's been around for a long time. But I, I'm of the school that American foreign policy has become a bit sclerotic, that we've become way too dependent on these arms sales to reward our friends and sanctions to punish our adversaries. I think we've got to really develop a whole new new toolkit um, that largely exists outside of the Department of Defense, new tools that state and USAID have in the propaganda space, the energy space, the anti-corruption space. Um, and so I'm hopeful that uh, Blinken is going to come to Congress and say, listen, dramatically plus up my non-military tools, uh, my smart power tools, so that I can actually go toe-to-toe with Russia and China, who, by and large, are exerting influence outside of the deployment of brigades and missile systems. So. That's what I like about Tony, and that's what I'm looking forward to, sort of being able to rethink um, the American foreign policy toolkit outside of, you know, what we give secretaries of states and departments of defense and presidents today.
0: And my last question, you're obviously going to—it's not just Tony Blinken. The Senate's going to have to confirm a whole bunch of uh, Biden nominees, already one of them, Neera Tanden for OMB, chief, is being targeted by your Republican colleagues. What are you expecting in terms of uh, the conference? process uh, for the Biden team. Uh, how many do you think uh, the Republicans will go after, and will they succeed? I, I honestly, I feel better
1: about the prospects for confirmation than I did maybe just a month ago. I mean, I've had a bunch of conversations with Republican colleagues, and I think that, you know, while there may be a few that they are going to, um, you know, put up on a pedestal and take shots at, um, I, I think that the, uh, the Biden's team um, can and will get confirmed. I do love this sudden fascination that Republicans have with foreign contracts uh, that nominees uh, have. I, I mean, this is a party that didn't give a crap about this issue for the last four years that all of a sudden are super concerned about what foreign business arrangements nominees to the State Department or Department of Defense have. So there will be no shame uh, from Republicans when it comes to the things that they magically care about when looking at Biden's nominees versus what they required to be presented by
0: Trump's nominees. Well, we will look forward to uh, reporting on that shame or shamelessness (laughs) um, and uh, having you back on again. But uh, thank you, Senator, for uh, joining us. Thanks, guys.
3: Thanks a lot, Senator.
0: Okay, we are now joined by uh, Devlin Barrett, the noted Justice Department and FBI reporter for The Washington Post, also author of the new book, October Surprise, How the FBI Tried to Save Itself and Crashed an Election. Uh, Devlin, welcome to Skullduggery. Great. Thanks for having me. So, uh, interesting day, Tuesday, with Bill Barr, the attorney general, first telling the Associated Press in an interview that um, the Justice Department has found no evidence of widespread fraud in the election that could change the outcome, directly undercutting President Trump's position in the election, and then, of course, his uh, revealing that he had already appointed Appointed John Durham, the U.S. attorney in Connecticut, as special counsel to continue his investigation of the investigation into Trump and Russia ties. Let's take the uh, election fraud announcement first. What do you make of what Barr is was doing there? Why was he going public with a message that directly undercuts the president's position?
2: So I uh- it, I think it was it is a big moment for both Barr, the Justice Department, and Trump. And I think I think he had this notion in his mind, and the people around him had this notion in his mind that the Attorney General was probably going to have to say something at some point to make this clear. But I know some of the folks around the Attorney General had sort of hoped it wouldn't come to this, that this the the counts and the certification and those issues, would basically resolve themselves in a way that left the Justice Department sort of out of the business of calling a winner and loser, because that's obviously not something that the DOJ generally does after elections. But I know it had been in the Attorney General's mind for a a number of days, at least a week, that that maybe in the beginning of December he might come out and just say this. He might feel he
0: had to. Was this his declaration of independence from uh, Trump?
2: (laughs) I really... I really don't see it that way. I mean, I, 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 think that I think what's most important is how he sees it. And I don't think he sees it that way. I think it's sort of his declaration of the obvious more than his declaration of independence. And I think when you have a situation where those six main states that were sort of the ones that were argued about have all certified, like, what is the point anymore of having this sort of frothy debate about non-existent, you know, wide-scale fraud or tampering? And so I think, I think he, he did the obvious, but he didn't only say the obvious, right? He put a teaspoon of sugar on it as well in the form of extending the Durham investigation into the Biden administration. So I think that's sort of a, a, a bit of a balm to, the, to Trump's anger on some of these issues. But I think part of it is the Justice Department for the last several weeks has been looking at these debates and these sort of accusations being thrown around by Rudy and Rudy Giuliani, uh, the president's lawyer, and sort of felt like, well, we're not really in the business of shooting down every conspiracy theory. Maybe we can just stay out of this.
3: Yeah, that, that that's what I think. If anything, Barr was declaring his independence from Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and the the conspiracy theorists, because I don't think Bill Barr has a lot of respect for them and for the way they think and what they've been doing. But before we get to Durham, I just want you to put this in a little bit of context for our uh, listeners, just to go back to the original decision Mm -hmm. that Barr made to investigate potential claims of fraud and voter tabulation irregularities, which is the way, I think, the way he put it. Because he announced that he was going to do that before... There was actually any real evidence, A, and B, made a policy decision, as I understand it, to launch such an investigation before certification, which is not the way
2: it had traditionally been done. So what was that all about? So that's an excellent point. And I think part of why Barr's move on Tuesday was so jarring and surprising to folks is because he had made all this noise previously about voter fraud you know, the, the the memo you cite obviously is a huge example of that and caused great consternation within the Justice Department among the careers about what are we doing here? Are we trying to create the impression of voter fraud where we actually haven't seen meaningful voter fraud uh, so far in this process? And, you know, as, as you know, a, a senior Justice Department lawyer basically resigned his post over that, took essentially, demoted himself to a lesser position because he disagreed with it so strongly. I think, One way to think of this is that Barr believed in the possibility, believed very strongly, and was willing to say publicly that there was a great possibility of mail in ballot fraud. And because there was going to be so much mail in uh, voting this year, that he, as, as we saw, he went out publicly and talked about what in his mind was the serious threat of voter fraud. And obviously, that only helps. The president's argument on some of these issues about the election being rigged, about you know Democrats you know tampering or, or phoning up the numbers. So I, I think Barr spent a period of months feeding that idea. But at the end of the day, when these states count the votes, the numbers are the numbers, and I don't think Barr is comfortable living in a world where he's associated with to your point, the kind of the sort of. Throw stuff against the wall, Rudy, and you know Rudy Giuliani saying you know Dominion with Hugo Chavez in in the in the music room with the with the candlestick. <laughs> you no, know, I, I think I think that's, that's way too far for for where from where Bill Barr's from.
3: The other thing I was always wondering is what if they had found voter fraud? I mean, I guess they could prosecute some people, but what's the remedy for that? I mean, the Justice Department isn't going to reach in and
2: overturn the election. No and, no, and not to get too nerdy, but like that's one of the craziest bits of this whole conversation is the Justice Department's role in voting enforcement is not to do the, the very thing that Trump has laid out as the thing he wants officials to do, which is cast ballots out to
0: disqualify ballots. Well, n- not only is the Justice Department not going to do that, no federal judge is going to do that either. The, I mean, you know, we talked about this from day one when, when the Trump folks started raising this issue of election irregularities and poll watchers couldn't, you know, get within six feet to see the polls and all that. You know, there may be instances of that, but that's not grounds for— Disenfranchising any particular voter, unless you can prove that voter voted illegally, wasn't qualified to vote, or committed some also, instance of fraud, and you then you have do to do actually it on go a particularized in particularized case.
3: Yeah. You got to go in and actually ask people who they voted for sometimes <laughs> to figure this out, which is not something that's done anyway.
0: And
2: even if you were to find, think about what DOJ's historical role has been in in, in investigating voting issues. Their role has been to make sure votes are counted, to make to prevent locals from tossing out otherwise valid ballots. It's the exact opposite mechanism. The law, the laws they have to work with are the exact opposite tool that you would in theory want if you were President Trump to toss out ballots. DOJ's job is to include things in counts, not to exclude them. It was never going to fly, even if you had something like what they you know claimed to have.
0: All right. So Barr said what he said. Uh, You know, there was speculation yesterday that he was immediately going to get fired by Trump. (laughs) He has not been fired to date, as we speak on um, Wednesday. But then, as you point out, he did toss this sort of, you know, gift for Trump in the sense that he has elevated the status of John Durham as special counsel, which to me, I mean, you know, this has two immediate effects. When we learn who Biden's choice for AG is... I can now, I think it's now assured that at his or her confirmation hearing, all (laughs) Republican senators will be demanding Will you pledge to protect the John Durham investigation and not fire him, thereby ensuring that this investigation will go on? So the big question here, and nobody has delved deeper into how the FBI handled Crossfire Hurricane. Barr did indicate yesterday, that's what the Durham investigation is about right now. It's not about the CIA. It's not about the intelligence community. It's what happened inside the FBI. So you know this better than anybody. What is your best information, hunch, about what Durham has and where he is going?
2: I think you have to look at the arc of this, to have a sense of where Durham is. There's a lot we don't know about what Durham's doing, right? But the parts we do know about are pretty telling, I think. And that one is that his only criminal case filed date is on information found by the inspector general. That's fine. I'm not suggesting a quibble with that case. I'm just saying that is a case brought to him, essentially, by the,
0: by the inspector general. An FBI lawyer who doctored an email from the CIA right. and sent it up the chain. Right. Right. And second,
2: I think if you look at the the individuals who you would think Durham would be most focused on, again, to, the, to Barr's point that we are now, this is now more FBI focused than CIA focused, please forget that we were telling you a year ago that it was more CIA focused than FBI focused. Those people haven't been talked to. Those people, the, the, the key people in the Bureau, the, the Comeys, McCabes, Pete Strucks, Lisa Pages, the key people who in theory, would be able to enlighten Durham or his people as to what happened and why. Durham hasn't interviewed them. Why not? And so, on- honestly, like, the, the, the first-order answer is actually a little lame, so apologies, but the first-order answer is COVID. Durham's work shrank and became much less ambitious for a period of time because of COVID, and and the, the Attorney General said that in his announce- announcement on Tuesday, and I think we have to take that at face value because I think that's true based on a lot of other conversations that have gone on. But the reality is, if you were not talking, like I don't know how Durham would respectfully close this case without at least attempting to talk to those four people, and frankly a bunch of others, who were in senior FBI positions at the time. And that hasn't happened. And I think one of the ways to think about that is that he Durham has, through his entire career, worked pretty slowly. Yeah. even Even among the yeah. world of federal prosecutors, where they are often given grief for moving too slowly, Durham is among the slowest of that you know, universe. And so I think a lot of what Barr is doing here is there's a genuine frustration on his part. He didn't have, that Barr didn't have a finished product of any kind to present before the election. That is a genuine frustration and anger that he felt in this process. And a, a great deal of concern and worry that the Biden folks would come in and just shut it down. And in Barr's mind, then you will never know what was really there, how important it was. And so he so he sets, so, he, he gives a special counsel title to basically make it very difficult for Durham to be locked out of that job. But all of the other data points, if you take Barr's statements out of it, all of the other data points you have in this investigation are that it is not a particularly compelling or far-reaching criminal case, that there is not a great deal of activity going on. And a lot of what he's spending his time doing, as we've been told by people who've interacted with him, is running down various conspiracy theories that just don't stand up to scrutiny. Yeah, it let, let me
3: let me follow up on this because you pointed out, you know, based on what Barr has said, that the the parameters of this investigation have been narrowed. So we're now talking largely about the FBI and the Justice Department. This, of course, is what what Michael Horowitz, the Inspector General, was restricted to, given his mandate. Right. So. At the end of the day, it seems rather likely to me that what you're going to get is a rehash of the Horowitz IG investigation. I've been told by by people close to the case that, you know, most of the people who've been interviewed, many of them interviewed by Durham himself, have been explicitly told, you're a witness, you're a witness, not a target. I don't know that right. there are any targets at this point. So what do we end up with? A more detailed version of the Horowitz Report, which was pretty damning, but that was really about implicit bias as opposed to, you know, criminal wrongdoing or corruption. And actually, one follow up question to that is Do you know, Devlin, if part of Durham's mandate is to issue a report? Does he have to
2: issue a report? I don't think he has to issue a report. And I think what you might see instead is some version of a long letter. But obviously, that work product is now going to be partly. There, there's, there's, there's a universe in which that work product will be decided by the next administration, not this one. So I think that's a little more up in the air than it was, let's say Monday or two weeks ago, two weeks ago, I would have said, I, I don't expect the report. I expect a, a long letter. Now I, I think just because
0: I thought the regs do call for the special counsel to submit a report to the attorney general. That's what Mueller did. And then that right. report became public. Right. So wouldn't wouldn't.
2: Right. But that was a, a choice. Like that was a, absolutely. But that was a choice that the attorney general made the bar, as it happens, uh, to to basically issue a, a redacted version of the whole report. There's not I, I don't read the regs to mean that the report has to become public.
3: Also, since we're being nerdy here, he, uh, Durham is not actually <laughs> appointed under the actual regs. He's supposed to have the authority. Oh man. Right? <laughs> hey, you're talking you're, you're talking right. to a couple of guys who reported on mm-hmm. on on Barr appointing a special counsel like back in 1992 mm-hmm. in the Innslaw investigation. Talk about a long Huge, memory Huge investigation.
2: Yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. so I I mean, look, I think things are a little more up in the air as far as the final product might be, but Look, every indication is that he is pursuing as, as a as a matter of finding facts, as opposed to disproving conspiracy theories. I think I, I think of the Durham investigation as essentially pursuing two tracks. One is fact finding, and the other is conspiracy theory disproving, essentially to the degree that he can. And on the on the fact finding track, I really think that it, it is, to your point, exactly right. It is about what's in the IG report by and large. Maybe some more. A li- some more details, maybe a few more, you know, reaches into different parts of the U.S. government, but essentially the inspector general report a different broader version of the inspector general.
3: G- given all that, if if you're the Democrats, I-, I think the position you take is, yeah, we won't fire him. He can write a report if he, if, if he wants to. And, you know, because I don't think they have a whole lot to worry about here. I mean, I could be wrong. Well, about the, that, I, but.
0: Let me the, the, the two areas that we know about that, you know, struck me as you know, we haven't gotten the full answers to are, you know, as you uh, have written, as Horowitz discovered the. Steele, Christopher Steele, the former British spy hired by the opposition research to, uh, firm working for the Democrats and the Clinton campaign, that when the FBI relatively early on in February of 2017 tracked down Steele's main source, the, the, the source basically disavowed, you know, the most sensational allegations that were in the, the Steele dossier. That there was rumor and gossip that uh, he hadn't he had no real corroboration for any of those uh, you know, major allegations, the P-tape, a well-developed conspiracy, uh, Michael Cohen in, in, in Prague, all of that. And the FBI knew that, or at least agents in the FBI knew that early on, yet they continued to submit it to the FISA court, the Steele dossier. They never advised the court, and both Comey and McCabe have said they knew nothing about the fact that the primary source for the guy who they were relying on as the basis for this FISA warrant and Carter Page and in many and in some ways frame their you know belief about what they were investigating, the theory of the case, they knew nothing about it. And I never understood how that kind of information never made it up the chain if Comey and McCabe are telling the truth.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I I think one of the ways in which this has been a a bad time for the FBI is that specials, there's, you know, one of the the sort of like common conventional wisdom views within the Bureau writ large is that special investigations, i.e. investigations that are run out of headquarters, are often a disaster. And the Crossfire Hurricane was in some ways the mother of all specials. And I agree with you. It's hard to imagine a universe in which the bureau is told, oh, yeah, that that was all bunk, man. I mean, that was mostly bar talk. And that doesn't get conveyed to the people who are, by their own definition, running those investigations.
0: Especially since Comey presented the most sensational allegation in the dossier to Trump himself at their very first meeting.
2: Yeah. And and look, I think there's a bureaucratic imperative to some of this. Right. Like who what? what person in any institution wants to be the person who says, oh, geez, we got a real big problem here and we're all going to have a little leg on our face, but better to deal with it now. Now, historically, I think the Bureau is the kind is the FBI is precisely the kind of place that actually does that better than a lot of other institutions, but they didn't do it in this case. And I mean, it is a good question to ask why if, whether or not, let's say for the sake of argument, okay, they're, they're being absolutely straightforward. They did not, the senior officials did not know. That still doesn't explain really in, in a meaningful way, I think, why the people, the next level down did not hit the brakes, did not change course, did not find a way to start working their way out of this as opposed to going further. You know, remember they go, they go and they brace Carter Page for five interviews in the spring of 2017. Like they're still hitting it really hard. And, you know, one of the things I talk about in the book, just because I think it's a classic example of how bureaucracies sometimes go off track is the Frank Sinatra, the FBI's investigation of Frank Sinatra in the 1950s.
0: That was that fascinating. Yes. <laughs> Tell I the story. That. Yeah. Super nerdy,
2: right? But there's an important point in it, which is that agents have been told for a period of years that Frank Sinatra was a communist. And obviously that was a huge deal to the FBI in the 50s. And what happened is that because the agents documented that, Hoover came to believe almost m- monomaniacally that Sinatra was a, was a pinko, was a red of some kind, and then there comes a point where Frank Sinatra wants to go on a USO tour to entertain the troops, and he's told he can't because of his background. And Sinatra actually goes to the FBI and says, "Look, I know these rumors have been around, but it's, it's nonsense, and you sh- you guys really owe me a solid here to fix this." And the bureau takes that and they decide that because he applied for a visa for this trip, they want to see if he lied on the visa application when he said he wasn't a communist. They're still looking to make a case. And they invented Frank's not not just dentist. They thought he might be engaged in a communist conspiracy with his dentist. And the reason I bring up that very nerdy old story is that I think sometimes suspicions, especially in the counterintelligence world, are very hard to die. They're almost like zombies. And I think some of this stuff became a zombie. I think Carter Page, the suspicions on Carter Page, they they long predated the Trump campaign, the Trump investigation. And to some extent, they, they long, will probably long surpass the Trump administration.
3: I think you have one different thing, one different dimension to this that's unique, which is you had Donald Trump at the center of it, yeah. who was such a outrageous character uh, on so many levels that it was easier for people to believe and, and, and to be less skeptical maybe uh, than otherwise.
2: What, I mean, I, I'm curious what you guys think because honestly, like to me, the moment where he says Russia, if you're listening, that's still, to this day, that's still to me the best piece of evidence they have to work with. And I, I am sympathetic to the FBI. It's like when you see the candidate himself say that in a live press conference, how are you how else are you supposed to take it So I'm curious how you guys fit.
0: Yeah, no, I caught that in the book, that the the most damning piece of evidence about Trump and Russia was what Trump had publicly said during the campaign. I would add that there were, um, you know, other details that emerged during the Mueller investigation, in particular, the fact that he was trying to do a business deal in Moscow with the approval, getting the approval of the Russian government during the campaign when he was publicly denying he any ties to Russia, was also a very damning piece of information.
3: Yeah, And Manafort yeah. sharing polling data with a Russian agent, right. you know, is going to go into that mix as well. So. Yeah, there,
0: there were plenty. So bottom line, do you believe anybody at the FBI has criminal exposure in the Durham investigation?
2: Look, I have, I have come across nothing that suggests criminal exposure for how they pursued the Russia investigation. I haven't found that. Now, I, I don't pretend to be able to predict the future. I don't pretend to know everything that John Durham has touched and looked at uh, in the course of that time, but I, I, don't, I don't see that. I, look, I think one of the ways in which this whole conversation, part of the reason I wrote the book, is because I think this whole conversation gets wildly off track when you try to make everything you dislike a crime. And I think one of the things that has happened in this debate, both with Hillary Clinton email and with the Russia investigation, is when stuff that happens that you dislike and you want to prove it's a crime, sometimes it's just not. That doesn't mean it's not bad stuff and, and the person who did it shouldn't be criticized for it which is absolutely. which is why which is why
3: you have IG investigations that makes absolutely. sense
0: or congressional absolutely. oversight and we used to have you know legitimate congressional investigations right. but they have become so yeah. polarized so ago. politicized <laughs> anyway. anyway but that listen, is
3: a that for... is a hugely important point uh, that's really important i think for our listeners to take away from this conversation i totally agree with that
0: as well and another takeaway is that if you want to understand what happened inside the FBI during the 2016 election there's no better guide than Devlin's book. Devlin, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery.
2: It's been a total treat, guys. Thanks.